The reading uh, this evening is from Micah 6, uh, reading verses 1 to 8. And uh, if you want to use a church Bible, it's on page 934. So that's Micah 6, verse 1, page 934. The Lord's case against Israel. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has raised a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Brian. What do you find difficult about worship? I think it's first and foremost important to say that worship is an incredibly broad subject, that even defining that itself is tricky as it is. And then when we start to have an understanding of what we think worship is or what it looks like, then trying to work out what we find difficult about it maybe also is a difficult task. Um, We are in the middle of a series on worship, and I've been asked to speak tonight about worship and justice. And if we haven't met, my name is Josh, and I'm really excited to speak about this. This is a big, big topic. I don't claim to have the answers. I don't claim to know it all. But I do feel like God has spoken to me through these passages. And I do feel like I've got something to maybe say to us tonight and to respond to and to see in our everyday following tonight. What do I find difficult about worship? I think the thing I find difficult about worship is that it's always bigger than what I think it is. That's the thing that's really difficult about it. It's not just like, what do I find difficult about worship? Well, uh, I find it hard to sing in that key at church on Sundays. My range isn't vast, as I'm sure you'll be surprised to hear. I'm not actually a fantastic singer. I can sing like beautifully, maybe within like one specific track of singing or key, uh, but you vary from that and it sounds pretty terrible. Maybe that's what I find difficult, maybe that's what you find difficult, but really actually worship is bigger than that. I think the thing I find difficult really is that it's not just about singing. You know, we sing that song there, it's your breath in my lungs, and then there's that bridge, and it gets you stirred up, and all the earth will, and you're like, yeah, all the earth will, you know. 
And I think the thing I find difficult about worship is I start to sing that and I'm getting swept up into it. And then I'm like, oh my goodness, this actually is more than just this moment that I'm singing about. All the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. Great are you, Lord. All the earth. Oh my goodness, maybe I've got to go tell all the earth. Because they, they don't know it. We're not all shouting it yet. Worship is bigger, bigger than my understanding, bigger than ever. I'll try to put it in a box, and I can't. Because ultimately, we're talking about worship of God, of our God, of the living God, of Jesus Christ, author of salvation, author of the universe, king of kings, friend, brother. He's the king. I can't put him in a box. I can't put worship of him in a box. What I find difficult about worship is that it's bigger. It's about my whole life. It's not just about what I offer him. So we're going to jump into this passage. We're going to have a go at pulling it apart and pulling some stuff out from it. Um, We're then going to respond to that in some form and some way, because I believe that unless this stuff is making an impact in my day-to-day, I don't really care. And I wonder if maybe you're the same. Like, this is lovely poetic language, but come on, it's got to mean something today. I actually think it really does, which is a good sign. And I think you absolutely will too, and I will get to respond to that and pray with one another. So, context. Micah, he's one of the prophets. We're in the Old Testament. A prophet is somebody who is speaking on behalf of God, who is foretelling of God's plans for his people. Micah is, 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 is really short. It's like this short, tiny little book, and it, it's, it's just filled with amazing stuff. We've got one of the kind of really early foretelling of the coming of Jesus in Micah. Uh, we've actually got this moment where Micah's like, there's going to be a perfect king, and he's going to be born in Bethlehem. We reckon Micah was written about 650, 700 B.C., So like before, 650, 700 years before Jesus was born, we've got somebody saying where he'll be born. I think that's amazing. But in Micah, we also have this this incredible sort of arc talking about God's people and talking about worship and talking about justice and talking about injustice and talking about the things that God hates and God longs to see his people stand up against. And then we have this amazing, beautiful picture of what it looks like to live in a society where God reigns, where the kingdom reigns. Micah's awesome. And we're in chapter 6, and we're in this kind of, um, kind of bizarre setting where we've got, it, it's, it's described as um, a divine courtroom setting. It's almost like a courtroom. You've got, uh, you've got the witnesses, which are described as being the mountains, and the rocks and the earth, like kind of looking, onlooking, deciding, judging. And then you've got kind of God and Micah sort of speaking on behalf of God. And then you've got Israel or God's chosen people. They're kind of standing and they're the defendants. They stand accused. And you've got this interesting setting where that's kind of being unpacked and lots of things are being said. You see, Micah speaks and writes at a time where there is immense injustice. You see, God's God's chosen people have started to turn away from God, and they're experiencing hardship. And in fact, actually, they're now crying out to God. And they're saying, God, have you forgotten us? God, where are you? We really need you. God, where are you? God's chosen people face attack from the Assyrians 
and they're thinking, oh my goodness, this, this threatens everything. God, where are you? We need you. And Michael writes at this time with an interesting message. It's not a message of, yeah, okay, here, here comes God and he's going to save the day, no worries, no problems. It's actually a bit different from that. As we read even in our chapter, it, it, there's a different sound. There's a different thing going on, thing being said. Because actually the reality, the real problem isn't necessarily the, the dangers and oppression that God's chosen people face. The real problem at hand is what's going on within the camp of Israel. What's going on in their own society. What's going on in their own community, in their own hearts. That's the real problem. And we read earlier in chapters 2 and 3 about injustice that is rife within God's people. We're talking bribery. We're talking uh, farmers being defrauded from their land. We're talking prophets and priests taking money to say the right things to the people just so that they can make a quick buck. Mike even makes fun of them at one point. He says, well, you may as well just start uh, prophesying beer and wine aplenty for everybody because that's what's going to make you some money. There's false prophets, their leaders who govern, who make decisions, are taking bribes, there's corruption. There's a moment even where Micah describes the corruption, uh, the, the kind of subjugation that this rich minority are forcing upon the poor majority, almost as if it's like they're ripping flesh from their bones, putting their meat in a pan and cooking it. It's like they're devouring the people with this injustice. See, the Old Testament, we see this kind of cycle all the time. We see this, uh, God, God, God sees his people, God loves his people, God rescues his people from danger. And the people are like, yes, you are God, we're your people, we're going to follow you all the days of our lives, it's all good. And then sooner or later, it all flips and they turn away. They start worshipping false gods, or they start uh, treating each other terribly. There's injustice, there's corruption, there's all kinds of sin and selfishness. And they've completely abandoned God. They've forgotten who God is. And once again, God turns up on the scene and says, okay, I will rescue you. I will send someone, anoint someone, appoint someone. I will, I will I'll devise a plan to bring you back. Don't worry, I'll get you back. And he gets them back and the people say, yes, you are God. We are your people. And then again, the cycle repeats itself. And we see this again and again and again. And previous to this book, there's a lot of idol worship going on. There's a lot of people choosing other gods worshipping golden calves, doing whatever, worshipping something else that they think will bring them a better blessing. And do you know, I don't think God actually minds too much about competing with idols because he always wins. God turns up on the scene when there's an idol and he breaks the idol. Time and time again, he proves, you want to put your life and your trust in something other than me? Well, it's not going to work. It will never satisfy. You will never find hope, joy, peace, life, or light, or anything. I don't mind smashing something that I know I can smash. But what we find really interestingly in Micah is something that God really hates to come up against. Not because he's not all-powerful, not because he can't defeat it, but just because he hates it. We find injustice. We find a real ill, a real disease that starts to tear the people apart. And it's injustice. It's the way that people treat one another. It's the way that people oppress one another. It's the way that people use wealth and power to push down other people. 
the context that Micah writes into, I don't think is any different from a world that we live in today. This stuff was written like 2,600 odd years ago. And yet, what has changed? You know, we live in a world where 800 million people will go to bed tonight hungry, denourished. Our church partners with an organization called um, IJM, International Justice Mission, and one of their, one of their most powerful messages that they, that they share is they say that actually um, some of the causes, or if not the, the most root cause of injustice and poverty, of poverty in our world is injustice. That if you want to solve poverty, you need to bring justice. And wherever there is poverty, there is injustice. Man, is there poverty in our world? Is there inequality in our world? Do you know 10,000 people died today because they couldn't afford health care? That's, that's not they didn't have access to health care. That's they couldn't afford the health care that was on offer to them. So because they didn't have enough money, they died. That where there is poverty, there is injustice. That there are 26 people on the planet right now who own the same amount of money as 3.8 billion people. Can you wrap your head around that? That's not to rubbish the people who who are immensely wealthy. Some of those people in that 26 are actually some of our uh, greatest philanthropists. But where there is inequality like that, there is injustice. Where there are some with extreme withs, there are many with extreme withouts. And this isn't just a problem that's far away from us. In our city, Edinburgh, the capital of Scotland, beautiful, affluent, stunning city to live in, we actually we can boast, we can say that uh, on average, um, household incomes in Edinburgh are 9% higher than anywhere else in Scotland. That's awesome. We can also boast that we have some of the worst deprivation in the UK. That 22% of households live below the poverty threshold. That of that 22%, 30% of them cannot afford what we would call uh, daily essentials. They can't afford them. I'm not talking like a TV. I'm talking like toothpaste and soap. I'm talking like breakfast. I work, at, the, at the moment, I work in schools a lot. I teach drums, and I get to go to all kinds of different schools. And some of the schools I go to are in some really deprived areas in Edinburgh. And I turn up at half eight, and the school's like crazy busy already at half eight in the morning. And they're all in the canteen, getting served a free meal from the school, because they can't afford it at home. Where there is inequality and poverty, there is injustice, and it's here in our city. I used to work in prisons before I worked in schools. And part of the things, one of the things that I would do is I would spend time writing forms with people who were in prison, helping them work out um, where they were going to live when they got released, or uh, helping them work out benefit stuff, or or whatever. Often it was uh, to help uh, help them work out what to do with their stuff, their possessions, because they had nobody who was going to pick them up at the gate. And it was uncommon to find, to be working with somebody who could write their own name to sign the form. That was uncommon. 
I worked with adults. They couldn't write, couldn't write their own name. Because of their situation, because of the poverty that they'd experienced growing up, they did not receive access to education in a way that we have. That in some of our most deprived areas of our city in Edinburgh, the average literacy age is the same as what we would expect of a seven-year-old. What that means is there are adults like you and me in some of the most deprived parts of our city who have the same reading and writing ability as a seven-year-old, as what we might expect a seven-year-old to have. Where there is inequality and poverty, there is injustice, and it's here in our city. There are people in our city who are ill because of the poverty that they face, because of the inequality that they experience, because of the injustice of our society and the way it loves money rather than people. A friend of mine is a GP in a deprived area of this city. And he says that there is absolutely no doubt, the studies have been done and he sees it every day, there's no doubt of the correlation, of the direct link between poverty and sickness. I'm not talking like a cold or a flu. I'm talking strokes, cancers, and heart disease. Severely poor mental health. Where there is poverty and inequality, there is injustice, and it's killing people. There is a love of money in our city which is pulling us apart from one another, and it breaks the heart of God. So God sends Micah into this setting, and he says, come on, I've got something for you to say to my people. And he creates, there's this kind of courtroom setup in the way that Micah delivers this. And so we've got Micah at the beginning, where we've got the Lord at the beginning saying, listen to what the Lord says, stand up, plead my case before the mountains. You guys are the mountains, okay? Mountains representing old ancient things who have stood the test of time, who can bear witness. That's you lot. The Lord's, <laughs> hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. And then Micah steps up to speak on behalf of God. He says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of God. And then you've got Israel kind of like, oh my goodness. Well, with, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with, a car, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams and ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? But the thing is, when we read about the kind of God that Micah is speaking of, I don't really think that God sounds like that in this passage. See, when we read it like that, it's almost like, oh, don't you know what you're talking about? Listen to who I am. I'm the person who's done this. My people, what have I done to you? Why are you doing this to me? I don't read it like that. In, verse, in chapter 7, Micah describes God like this. He says, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. 
You will again have compassion on us and you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. That's the God that is being described here. God of mercy and kindness and love. I don't read that passage with an angry tone. I read it like he's pleading. He says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember, please, what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey. That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. God is pleading with his people. He's on his knees, or maybe he's on a cross. And he's saying, have you forgotten me? I'm the God who rescued you from slavery. I'm the God who pulled you out of oppression. I'm the God who saved you. I'm your father. And you think I've abandoned you? You think because you face hardship that it's my fault? You think I would put this on you? To hurt you or to harm you or to, do, or to punish you? No, no. God has remained the same. God hasn't changed. What's changed is his people. They are no longer calling him their God. They're no longer following his ways. So they, they say, well, how do we buy our way out of this? Because we buy our way out of everything. So maybe I'll just, I'll just offer a better sacrifice to you. I'll, I'll offer my, my, my wonderful, you know, my calf. It's just, this, that's, that's my favorite calf. I'm going to give you my favorite calf. It says, I, I, they'll say, I, I'll give you my firstborn, in fact, the most precious thing to me. My firstborn. Heaven. God says, you can't, this isn't something that you buy your way out of. Worship isn't something, a momentary offering. It's not just something that you just throw my way and say, oh, okay, we all good. That's what worship is. No, God says, worship is bigger than that. That following me and being my chosen people is bigger than just a momentary offering. It's not about the quality of your offering, but the content of your heart. The way you live is your worship. What does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly? The thing I find most difficult about worship is that I can't just use worship to buy my way back to God. That maybe God's displeased with me, or maybe I've done some wrong, but I'll raise my hands in worship tonight, and maybe that will make things okay. Or maybe I'll, I'll turn up to all three services on a Sunday and that will just tick the box and we'll be fine and I'll last another week. Now God says, come on, I want to capture your whole life. Your worship isn't just what you offer me on a Sunday. Your greatest worship is what you offer me on a Wednesday. It's how you live. It's how you act justly. It's how you love mercy. It's how you walk humbly. Whatever captures your mind's attention, your heart's desire, and your soul's ambition will have your worship. It's not the thing that you raise your hands to on a Sunday. It's the thing that you give your life to in the rest of the week. 
So what does it mean to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly? We're just going to take a quick journey through that, and then we're going to respond to it. I think acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with your God are the best things you can do with your entire life. You're looking for purpose, you're looking for peace, you're looking for joy, for satisfaction, you're looking for direction, you're looking for what on earth am I here? It's here. Here's the answer. Sit tight. So act justly. See, Mike is kind of mirroring and echoing some of his contemporaries. One of the other minor prophets, Amos, says in in chapter 5, verse 24, he says, But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Do justice. Act justly. It's about what you have and what others don't have. What you give and what you take. It's about the clothes that we choose to wear and the places that we choose to shop. It's about the heart that we have when we receive others and look upon others. It's about the causes that we can fight for and stand up against. We saw Jesus stand up for causes all of the time. We saw Jesus flip tables in the temple because he said, actually, there's injustice going on and I'm sick of it and somebody needs to stand up against this. We saw Jesus welcome in tax collectors and sinners, people who were regarded as outcasts because he said, actually, do you know what? Pushing them out of society is injustice. Welcoming them in is justice. Act justly. And what do we hear from Amos when we act justly? Justice is like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. It's not like a barren desert where nothing grows. Where there's justice, life grows. Where there's justice, people come to life. Where there's justice in our city, our city comes to life. Chronic unemployment turns around. Violence numbers go down. Sickness and illness uh, from preventable causes goes down. Where there is justice, life is also. Act justly. Love mercy. When we flip to Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6, says this, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea is another one of the minor prophets. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. What is this thing called mercy? What what does it mean to love mercy? The Hebrew word there is hesed. It's how we treat others, and it's about our loyalty to God. And it's both. So it's about how we treat each other, and it's about how we place God in our lives. It's about knowing that God is our God, and we are his people. That same word has said is also the same word in Hebrew for love. So act justly and love love. Love love. Love one another. Love God, love one another. Love God, love one another. Earlier on in Micah in chapter 4, um, we have this beautiful description of what does it look like when a whole city starts to embrace these values. And it talks about the lowly, the poor, the grieving, the outcast, the lame, the grieving, that these people get brought into the fold. That where they might be on the frayed edges and the outside, they get brought into the middle in love. 
Love mercy, it means loving people, loving the unlovely, loving the stranger, loving your neighbor. Loving, loving, loving. Paul talks about in the New Testament that the world will see and know that God is alive and real by the way that we love one another. So love one another. Love mercy. Lastly, walk humbly. Walk humbly with your God. Isaiah 29 verse 19 says, The humble rejoice in God. Is this picture of the people who know who God is and know who they are and choose to walk with him, they rejoice. That walking humbly with God is all about this. Very simply, know that God is God and there is no other God and walk with him. Know that God is God and there is no other God. So your relationship, your family, your ambitions, your bank accounts, That's not your God anymore. The things that we try and force and wedge into that God hole in our lives, no, God is God. So walk with him. And that that picture of walking with him is about every single day, step by step by step, every decision that we make, every choice, every dream, every idea, every circumstance, every situation, we hold the hand of Jesus and we walk with him. We ask him for things. We listen to him. We get our identity from him. We look nowhere else but him for fulfillment in our lives. That's what it means to walk humbly. Be in relationship with God. So we have this situation where we are God's people and we are constantly, and maybe I can only speak on behalf of myself, I am constantly in that never-ending cycle. God, you are my God and I'm walking with you and I'm, your, I'm yours and we're good and we're tight and, and then something else catches my eye or then something else comes up or I get afraid of something or something really horrible happens in my life or something tricky comes up or something I want shows up or something shiny's in front of me and I say, actually, that's my God. And I chase that and I get, more, I get left more without than with and I, I feel empty and I feel purposeless. And I go, oh God, I, I want you back. So I'm going to turn back up at church extra early this week. I'm going to take two gulps of communion wine and it's going to be good. And God's like, no, 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 no. I haven't changed. I still love you. I still forgive you. I still accept you. You're still mine. You're still my child. I've still called you. My plans for you are still perfect and good. I'm still your father. It's just you've changed. And I I don't really care about your momentary offering. I care more about your heart and your Wednesday and your Thursday and your Friday. Because I long for you to act justly in the world that you live in. And I long for you to love others powerfully and sacrificially. And I long for you to walk every step with me. Because when we do that, we live this awesome roller coaster, fulfilling life with God, which is unbelievably full of blessing and miracles and kindness and grace and goodness. That's on offer to everyone, not just us in this room, but everyone. Jesus says, Follow me, take on my yoke. 
Let me give you rest for your soul. Let me break your chains. Let me save you. There's a lot in this passage. And I think there's loads of ways that we can respond to this. And I, I wonder just for, for us tonight, and, and we have communion also, which is a wonderful way to respond to Jesus, to say to him, God, you, you are the one I want to follow. You are the one I want to place at the middle and the center of my life. But I wonder also if there, if there are some things that people just really feel like started to strike a chord with them that they would like prayer for. And we offer prayer ministry over here um, later on during the service and during the, during the kind of sung worship part. And I wonder if some of the things that might have kind of struck a chord with you is when I started to talk about acting justly. I mean, we, we, need, we all need to, to live out all three of these things, but I think for some of us, there's calling wrapped up in this. I think some of us get a real sense of drive and buzz and excitement when we start to talk about justice and injustice. And actually, we start to really picture and hone in on some of the things that we really want to see change in. That God actually even starts to break our hearts. And when we think about those things, it makes us upset or it makes us mad. I think sometimes that's a sign of God's calling on our lives. I think there are people here tonight that that is truthful. You should go get prayer for that. God would love to speak to you about that. We would love to rally around, come alongside you and cheer you on in that in whatever small or large way. I think also when I spoke about loving mercy that there are people who felt this call, this sense or urge or desire to want to be one of those people who lives out God's love. Like everywhere you go, you just ooze God's love. You want to be known for one of those people who just loves well. That when people just bump into you on the bus, they just get a sense of, oh my goodness, that person is kind. That person is lovely to be around. That you can always be counted on to be there whatever time of day. You want to be that person. We all are called to be that. But there are some people who have a driving desire, sense, unshakable of like, I, I, I want that. I actually, I really want that. Love to pray for you. And I think lastly, there are some people who are like, do you know what, I... I really need to start walking with God. I really need to start walking with God. And that might be like, I really need to start walking with God, full stop. Or it might be like, I really need to start walking with God again. And what I mean is there might be some people who are like, actually, for the first time, I want to give this a go. I want to start walking with God. I've walked with lots of other things. I want to walk with God now. Or if you're anything like me, you're probably like in that regular cycle and you're just at that point in the cycle where you're like, actually, do you know, God, I want to walk with you again. I've been walking, I've been walking elsewhere. I've been flipping, wandering all over the place. But I want to walk with you now. And that's great. We'd love to, to pray with you. Remember, this is a God who says he takes our transgressions and our muck and our rubbish and he casts it into the depths of the sea. He's not a condemning father. He looks at us with love and mercy and kindness and says, come on, come on, come walk with me. Come walk with me. So why don't we stand and I'd love to pray for us. And then we'll start to respond. And maybe you'd just like to close your eyes just so that you can kind of quieting the distractions around you and think about how you would like to respond to this, to think about maybe what God might be saying to you in all of this. God loves you. 
and he calls you his chosen people. And he calls you to a life of fulfillment. And his only requirement is this, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. So Father, we stand before you and we open our hearts to you and we open our lives to you. And we do the scary thing and we say, God, just come and examine us. Search us and know us. God, we long to be a people who stand up for justice everywhere we go. We long to be a people who are marked by your love. Unending freely given love. And we long to be a people who are unshakable in our faith, who look to you and you alone when the storm hits or when it's sunny and clear. God, you are the one that we follow. Yours is the voice that we listen to. Jesus, I pray for myself and for everyone here that we would have the courage to take that journey with you. And that we would always know that you are a God who is loving and kind and gracious and merciful, not condemning, slow to anger, abounding in love. Jesus, just now by your Holy Spirit come, reveal to us in our heart the callings that you've placed on our lives in these areas. Pray these things in your mighty name. Amen.